The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to another Top of the Pods. I'm Ben Luke. This week, in our look back at some of the interviews we've done over the past two years, we're focusing on female old masters and also women Baroque composers who are explored in a contemporary artwork. First, we turn to Artemisia Gentileschi. In 2018, the National Gallery in London announced that it had bought Gentileschi's self-portrait of St Catherine of Alexandria. That work has just been on a tour of unusual British venues, from Glasgow's Women's Library to a doctor's surgery in Yorkshire, a Catholic high school in Newcastle and a prison in Send, Surrey. It's now back at the National Gallery ahead of a survey of Gentileschi's work that opens at the gallery in 2020. In January 19, I was joined by Letizia Treves, the National Gallery's curator of later Italian, Spanish and French 17th century paintings, to talk about Artemisia and that remarkable new acquisition. Letizia, can you tell me first more about Artemisia Gentileschi, the woman and the artist? Sure. I mean, she's obviously a name now that many people have heard of, not just people sort of in the art world or interested in art. Um, And I'd say that's quite a recent um, occurrence. Um, She was really sort of rediscovered in a way um, in the 1970s. She featured an exhibition in L.A. on women artists um, and a number of her works were exhibited then. And so she sort of came to the fore then. Um, And a number of feminist art historians focused on her and her work um, throughout the latter part of the 20th century. But it's only really since she started being the subject of shows, of monographic show in 2001 in New York and then more recent exhibitions that I think she really came to a kind of wider public. And I think now she is not necessarily a household name, but I think people have heard of her. Um, I've heard of her as an artist, but also her life story. Um, I think a lot of the interest around her and sort of people's view of her as a kind of empowered woman derives from her biography, rather like Caravaggio's own biographical story somewhat sort of (laughs) overshadows the art. Um, But I think Artemisa as an artist now is coming to the fore. And I think that's, um, you know, I'm looking forward to working on this show in 2020 because I think it's very much focusing on her as a painter. Um, Obviously, you can't ignore what was happening in her life and the big events that, that, that obviously influenced her life and her art, but it is very much on her artistic abilities. Can you tell us something of that biography then before we get into into the to the painting that the Nationals acquired? Sure. She, Artemis is seen very much as a sort of exception. And I think it's important to say she was quite exceptional, that she wasn't the only woman artist of the 17th century. I mean, there had been other successful artists before her. Um, but she was born in Rome um, to Orazio Gentileschi, who was a, a well-established painter in Rome, and a lady called Prudencia. And Artemisia's mother died when she was just 12. So she was effectively brought up in a, a sort of male household. So brought up by her father, um, and she had three brothers. She was, in fact, one of five, but two, two died. Uh, and the brothers and Artemisia were all trained by Orazio in his own workshop. But it's clear that she was the one that he saw had greater talent than, than the brothers. Um, and sort of everything changed when um, she was raped by Agostino Tassi. Tassi was a, a, an extremely successful painter um, of sort of trompe l'oeil architecture and who was working at that time with Orazio uh, on a large project, the Casino delle Muse, and he was brought in to teach Artemisia perspective. Um, and he raped her um, and they... Ha- clearly had sexual relations for some months and then he was brought to trial by Orazio and this is very famous, it's perhaps the most famous episode in Artemisia's life because remarkably all the trial documents actually survive or a large portion of them survive. So you can actually read Artemisia's own words in the witness box and you read the accusations against Tassio and it's quite extraordinary to have that kind of 
sort of documentary evidence still survive from the 17th century. Um, and he's effectively found guilty of deflowering her because what Orazio is bringing against Tassi is the fact that not only did he rape his daughter, but he didn't do the honourable thing and marry her afterwards. Um, and this is the, the sort of idea of the lack of honour, the, the sort of dishonour on his family. That's very much what's motivating the trial. Um, so he's found guilty, um, although though his punishment's never enforced. And Artemisia is married off two days later to the brother of her defence lawyer and with him moves to Florence. Um, and obviously this this episode was obviously a great sort of tragedy in her life. I mean, when she describes in her own words this really violent um, attack on her, um, it is quite harrowing. But I think it, if that had never happened, her life would have been very different. She would have carried on working probably in her father's studio in Rome. But as a result, her sort of enforced move to Florence really was the making of her. And it's incredible to think sort of how she turned the situation around and really... I mean, I like to think in Florence she really became Artemisia. Um, she found her own sort of artistic voice. Um, and it's where she really gained independence in Florence. And she's there for about seven years. And then she comes back to Rome, very different sort of person. She's very much in demand, um, very successful. And we know this from letters from her husband that survived saying, you know, they've got cardinals and princes around the house all the time. She, Artemisia doesn't even have time to eat. She's so busy. Um, and then in 1630, she settles in Naples, where she lives till the end of her life, at least sort of 25 years, and runs a very successful workshop. And so she pretty much stays in Italy, except for a brief trip to London in the late 1630s, which in itself was quite unusual for a woman to be travelling internationally alone. Indeed. Uh, just uh, one thing that, about the biography that makes her have a certain currency today is, as you say, in those documents around the trial, it's clear that, that she is being put on trial in the trial and, and in fact, is 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 tortured in, as, as part of that process. I mean, a lot has been made of that. And I think there's been a very much a more measured reading of those documents in a wider sort of um, frame, if you like, uh, particularly uh, one social historian called Elizabeth Cohen's done quite a lot of work on actually the documents relating to the trials of young virgins in Rome in that period. Um, and um, it seems there's a sort of standard way of leading these trials. And actually, it falls quite within that. I wouldn't call it a pattern, but within that. But if you really read carefully the words, I mean, she was tortured by using the sibilla, which were these ropes tightened around her fingers whilst she was in uh, the box. Um, but the judge asked her beforehand, is it all right if we do this? And it's clear if you really read the, the, the original Italian, it is clear that it's in a way that they're, they're asking if they can torture her to in a way prove her innocence, in a sense, sort of, uh, you know, just to, to make sure that what she's saying is actually true. And, and it is while she's they're torturing her with the sibilla that she says, you know, it's true, it's true, it's true. She repeats that what she says is true. Um, so I think in a way it was sort of in support of her innocence in this situation. I think you can already sort of read in, in the language that's used that the, it's in a way a way to catch Tassie out. Right. Now, the, the making of her in artistically, as you say, was, was her move to Florence. Can mm. you say something about her experience there? What kind of education, mm. for instance, did she, did she have there? And, and was she in another painter's studio straight away? No, I think the really remarkable thing is that she sets up independently. Um, you know, she was trained in her father's studio. You know, these sort of fa a kind of family workshop tradition existed since the Renaissance and not just in Italy. But it was often a father to son sort of workshop. So it's quite unusual that female members of the family would be involved. But as I say, Artemis is not the first. You know, Lavinia Fontana, her father was very um, successful. So 
you know, in a way, her sort of training in Rome wasn't unusual. It's was perhaps a bit unusual because she was a woman. But the whole, you know, learning from your father, your trade from your father wasn't unusual. The fact of her moving to Florence and having to set up independently is the thing that really made her, I think. Um, we have no real indication of her having a studio with, with pupils as such. She worked effectively from home. Her studio was in her home. Um, her husband was apparently a painter, but very sort of modest <laughs> kind of renown. Um, and she was the very first mem- female member of the Academy in Florence. She was a member there from 1616. So, you know, she, if she arrived in around 1613, within two, three years, she's already really established herself there. So it really shows incredible determination, but also kind of recognition of her skill. And I think it's partly to do with her resilience. I think um, it also had to do with who she um, came into contact with in Florence, and like you say, her education, but also the circles she moved in. One of her great sort of protectors there was Michelangelo um, the Bonarroti, the younger, who was the great nephew of the great Michelangelo. And um, in fact, Artemisia's only documented picture in Florence is in the ceiling of Casa Bonarroti still today. And there she is alongside other Florentine artists of her of her time. So she seems to have integrated herself quite quickly in Florence. Um, and one of her close friends was Cristofano Allori, one of the greatest painters in, in the 17th century in Florence, who was also a godfather to her son Cristofano. So she clearly immediately set us, you know, sort of entered into artistic circles, intellectual circles. She was a friend of Galileo um, and she worked for the Medici. And did, did she carry her Caravaggesque style that she would have learned in Rome with her to Florence or did she very much incorporate new styles and influences from her surroundings? It's so interesting you say that because it's such a hot topic that's so discussed because she has been called a chameleon and I think as a result of this now many pictures get attributed to her that aren't necessarily by her because you can sort of use it as a dustbin well she's chameleonic she changes all the time I think in the in the kind of uh, broader sense, she is quite a chameleon. She can adapt her style, but it's part of her sort of business strategy, I think. So, you know, she spends 25 years working in Naples and her pictures look really Neapolitan. But of course they would. She's been living in Naples. She's working for Neapolitan patrons. Um, and I think when she moves to Florence, I think actually more than Caravaggio, um, it is her father. It is Orazio's pictures and Orazio's handling of paint that's most kind of present in her mind. And in the picture that the National Gallery bought, um, you know, the thing that became very clear is, as the picture was being cleaned is just that technically the way she paints the flesh and so on, it's very, Arazzo is still very present in her mind. I think what's true in Florence is she's looking at these Florentine artists she's frequenting. She's using a kind of tonality that you see in Florentine painting at that time. She's also painting pictures for Medici taste. So that also makes sense. But when she comes back to Rome in 1620, that's when Caravaggism, you know, after Caravaggio's death, 10 years after, um, is when Caravaggism is really at the height of its sort of popularity. And I think there is a definitely a renewed interest in this heightened naturalism, start lighting, and you can see that in the pictures of the 1620s. Can you say more about um, the circumstances in which she would have created the specific work which the National now has? Well, the conservation has been really interesting because, you know, I think a lot of ink has been spilled on Artemisia, but not a huge amount has been written about her technique. And I think this has actually played such an important role in actually understanding Artemisia. There's been a lot written about, you know, datings and attributions and also sort of the, the kind of more uh, gender-specific interpretation of her pictures and the iconography. But I think her technique is absolutely fundamental to understanding Artemisia and actually sort of weeding out the pictures that aren't by her that are currently sort of sitting in this sort of limbo. Um, so... 
during the conservation of the National Gallery painting, we noticed similarities with, obviously, Orazio's painting technique. We noticed differences. Um, the picture is very closely related to two paintings, one that's in Hartford, um, Connecticut, at the Wadsworth Athenaeum, which shows it's a self-portrait of her playing the lute, and the other is a St. Catherine in the Uffizi. And the, the, the sort of similarity between these pictures is not just sort of superficial, formal similarities, but she's taken direct borrowings from one and the other. This is almost a, ma- a kind of amalgamation of these two other pictures, which, you know, sheds light on her practice. You know, how did she did she transfer these designs? Did she use tracings? I mean, we know her father, Orazio, uses tracings a lot. Um, did she have these three pictures in the studio once? You know, um, did the, pr- the sort of composition evolve in the National Gallery painting? Did she know exactly what she was doing from the very beginning? I mean, there are certain technical aspects of the picture that suggest it did evolve into a St. Catherine um, and perhaps didn't start its life as a St. Catherine. So I'm very interested also in how she uses her own image. So the picture in Hartford is clearly a self-portrait, very kind of characterised face. And ours is a little bit idealised. And I think... There's been too much discussion in the past about whether a picture is or isn't a self-portrait. I think there's a kind of disguised self-portraiture in a lot of her works where um, she would clearly have expected people to kind of vaguely recognise her features and know it was painting by a woman of a woman who looked like Artemisia. But it doesn't necessarily have to be a self-portrait in a very literal sense. I think that's really that's a really interesting aspect, isn't it? Because how much of it is an is it almost like an advert for, for her capabilities and also for, for her her. Uh, personality for her strength or, mm. or strength of character and um, it's, it's very easy to read biography into it isn't it because it's such a striking image and we know about this history of hers yes I mean I've had inquiries from the public since we announced the acquisition also saying you know um are there, you know, signs of torture on her fingers? She's St. Catherine after all. St. Catherine was, you know, tied to a spiked wheel. Um, and that's the story. And, you know, is it if it's her, has her hands been tortured? You know, can you see any marks on her hands? And I think it is a bit literal and a bit taking it too far. I mean, you can imagine, um, you know, she might have identified a little bit with St. Catherine, but I think one can be a little far-fetched in that, in reading her in every Judith, Susanna, Cleopatra, and, you know, um, tortured saint. <laughs> um, but I think she knew perfectly well that using her own image in her paintings or or, or a type that certainly would have been recognised as, as reminding, you know, at least informed by Artemisia's own features, would have had an additional sort of appeal. It is self-propaganda to a degree. And there's a practical element as well. You know, she's working in a studio. We know models are expensive. She says this in letters later in life, you know, complains about having to paint this picture with eight figures in it and the models cost so much money it's hard to get your hands on good models. Um, and she's got a mirror, you know, so she's going to use her own face. Um, but I think there's definitely a sort of self-marketing um, element to it as well. What accounts for the fact that she needed to be rediscovered if she was successful in her own time? I think it's so like the story of Caravaggio in a way. It's about taste. And I think her very naturalistic paintings by the end of the 17th century were pretty much, you know, out of favour. And there was a kind of much greater sort of interest in classicism. And and like Caravaggio, like her father Orazio, these artists were just forgotten in the 18th and 19th century. Um, And... You know, it just took her a little bit longer than Caravaggio to be to be sort of rediscovered, if you like. And in terms of the National Zone collection, there are some women artists in the collection, but this is the first work by her that you've acquired. Let's mm. say it's the beginning of, of the collection. It seems to me really wonderful that it is a self-portrait mm. that, that's the first work by Artemisia that's come into your holdings. I mean, she's been on the wish list. I've said this a number of times on the National Gallery's wish list for some time. I mean... 
my predecessors, you know, curators in my area, including our current director, Gabriele Finaldi, when he was curator there, we all put forward our desire to our trustees in a way of our sort of wish list artists, not necessarily specific pictures. Um, and she, like her father, Orazzo, have been on there because we have these three great Caravaggios. We don't really have many Italian Caravaggios paintings. And there have been a large number of Artemises coming on the market in the last sort of 10 years. Um, but it's to find the right one. And the right one, and you know, if, if we had to sort of put down a wish list on paper, you know, you'd say, well, I want a Florentine picture. It's definitely her best sort of period where she really kind of finds her herself, you know, her, her sort of artistic language. Um, I'd love to have a self-portrait. You know, although she's famous for these very violent scenes, I I, I might struggle a bit to, to, to hang a, you know, either the Naples or Fitzy <laughs> Judith in my galleries every day. I don't know. We've got equally violent pictures. But, you know, I like the fact that this is in some ways quite an atypical. It's, it's a bit of a quieter picture. It's incredibly strong and powerful, but it's a sort of less obviously violent picture. There are a lot of very sensual pictures that have come on the market as well. And that's something one associates with Artemisia. But um, it, this picture just hit so many, you know, ticked so many boxes for us. And it was the right picture at the right time for the right price. And we just felt it was an opportunity too good to be missed. And it did sort of emerge almost out of nowhere, didn't it? Or had you been aware of it for some time, that it existed? No, so it was it was discovered in France in 2017 and was put up at auction in um, December of that year. Um, and we weren't made aware of it beforehand. Um, and uh, as soon as the auction happened, in fact, a couple of days before the auction, we were made aware of it. And... Um, I immediately, in fact, I was on maternity leave. So when I came back to work, I immediately got onto the case of trying to find who bought it because I was very keen to see it. I mean, I was very interested in it, but I wanted to see it more from a kind of art historical point of view. It was quite an interesting uh, picture from photographs. Um, and the moment it had its export license, as soon as it arrived in London, I went to see it the day after our director came to see it. And then it, it actually came to the gallery immediately for us to, to we spent some months doing technical and scientific investigation of the picture, um, really to assess its condition. We did all the sort of due diligence concerning provenance. You know, these things take time and it was presented to trustees later in the year. So, And now it's up in the galleries and you, you indicated that you'd had some reaction to it. It seems to me that it's really sort of stoked a sort of fire in, mm. in the audience of the National and that it, that people really seem already attached to it. It, we felt that the moment we announced, actually, we announced the acquisition in July, although the picture wasn't on view yet. And um, the sort of, well, you often get a sense of the public reaction through social media now, through the number of emails one gets and all this sort of thing. Um, and there was so much excitement. And we also felt it within our own staff, you know, within the gallery. Um, and then throughout the summer, we followed the progress of the conservation through these short films that, you know, you can still see through our website. And that was a way to kind of keep people engaged because it's unusual for us to buy a picture and then not give people access to it straight away. Um, and then there was sort of an even greater excitement when it actually went on the wall. And it's been so wonderful to see because there were, in the days running up to Christmas, I would go up and look at it in Central Hall. And there was always a crowd in front of it. And people who'd read about it in the press and who'd come to see it made a trip especially to see it. And it's, it, it did you know, fill me with joy that this picture really is you know, a, an acquisition of a painting, particularly a collection like the National Gallery should be transformative for that collection. And it should be a picture that either speaks artistically across the collection, but also speaks to people and might reach people that our pictures don't normally reach. And I think this Artemisia really does that. And do you feel that this is the first of a series now of acquisitions of women artists, which we'll see entering the National Gallery collection? 
I think although we have a strategy towards acquisition, so we identify sort of gaps in the collection, I think sometimes you have to be opportunistic and there has to be the right picture at the right time. Um, and we didn't buy the Artemisia because she was a painting by a woman artist. I mean, that has nothing to do with the Me Too movement. It was an art. She is an artist we've wanted to represent for some time. It's the right picture and it came up and we were able to acquire it. Um, I'd say there are plenty of other women artists we should represent. You know, if the right Mary Cassatt came along, if the right Sofonisba, um, Anguissola came along, you know, it'd be great to represent these artists. Um, but we shouldn't be buying them just because they're white women artists if they're not very good pictures. You know, I mean, I think you have to be incredibly selective and choose, choose the, you know, when you have the calibre of collection the National Gallery has, to add to that, you really need to get pictures of the highest order. And whether they're by male or female artists, in a way... Um, it's not the sort of defining reason for buying them. You can see Artemisia Gentileschi's self-portrait as St Catherine of Alexandria at the National Gallery in London now. Now, Jordana Pomeroy is the director of the Patricia and Philip Frost Art Museum at Florida International University in Miami. She was formerly at the National Museum of Women in the Arts in Washington, where she was the museum's curator of painting and sculpture before 1900, and eventually chief curator. At the NMWA, she curated the exhibition Italian Women Artists from Renaissance to Baroque. Jordana joined me in the London studio in January 2019, as we were looking forward to the exhibitions in the year ahead. One of those was the exhibition opening at the Prado Museum in Madrid this coming October, dedicated to two female Renaissance artists, Lavinia Fontana and Sofonispa Anguissola. And these two painters dominated our discussion. Here it is. Jordana, you were at one time at the National Museum for Women in the Arts, and it seems to me that the museum has played a crucial role in this process of restoring these great artists of the Renaissance and Baroque period to some kind of prominence. Would that be fair? I, I, that, is our, our, that is the mission. That is the goal of the museum, uh, not only to restore, but to uh, find their proper place in the art historical canon. Uh, so this has been, um, that has been the, the goal, and also just to tell a different narrative uh, from the one that's ordinarily told. Now, Whilst you were there, you curated a show, I think in 2007, uh, of Baroque and Renaissance women artists. I'd like to know something about the kind of research that went into that show then, because since there's been a lot of, lot more scholarship. But what was the scholarship situation like in 2007? Well, uh, obviously there was much less of it, um, but there were some very good scholars working on the subject. Uh, and of course, you know, starting with uh, Linda Nochlin's Why Are There No Great Women Artists?, uh, and and you know then you move on. There were uh, quite a few uh, articles written on Artemisia, and uh, because she has such an interesting life story, based on her rape trial. Um, but there's also um, uh, there was some information coming out on uh, Lavinia Fontana, and that was an exhibition. Uh, I believe it was in Italy before we had thought of uh, putting a, basically an encyclopedic exhibition together. Uh, so that was that was part of it, was just sort of seeing that we were on the cusp of something. And and since then, there's been a, you know, a plethora of uh, research and writing on the subject of women artists in the period. So how did you find the works that, that made up that show? Oh, that's a that was a fascinating scavenger hunt uh, because – 
unlike the National Museum of Women in the Arts, when you go to the Uffizi, uh, you don't, you can't say, "Listen, have you categorized your works by gender, please?" Um, that, at least at the time when I was doing that research, that was not the case. So you always had curators scratching their head. Ah, that's a really good question by women artists. Okay, let me think about that. So. Uh, we had a couple of people we were working with in Italy, but uh, mostly in Rome and uh, and actually another person who just had a sense of where all these works were in private holdings who really had to guide me because I couldn't, as I say, just walk into a museum and say, listen, we're going to take everything you have by women artists. Um, plus, there's a lot more to that dance than, than just going in and asking anyway. Uh, that was really the answer is it and that's the fun part about being a curator is the scavenger hunt you know it's not just laid out for you you have to tell that story you have to find the works uh finding some of these works on paper was not easy uh it was hard to get some of these loans like a proprietor de rossi uh was was near impossible we had a sofonis banguesola that um is is highly valued and um but they let it go for this exhibition so we were very fortunate I'd like to talk about some of the particular individuals involved. I think let's start with Sofonisba Angosola because she is such an extraordinary artist in ten, in the sense that she was enormously successful to a degree in her time in the sense that she went to the Spanish court. But also she was not from a family of painters which is very unusual. Her background is interesting but she was not from a family of painters. She was recognized for her as a prodigy and eventually found a, a court appointment in Spain. And this is, uh, you know, a very unusual narrative. Uh, someone like Lavinia Fontana, her father, of course, had a major studio. She was an apprentice to him. That was the more typical. Same with Artemisia. Um, you know, and then sometimes you had nuns. That's another interesting narrative. People who were largely self-taught and and also sold their works. That was that to me actually is one of the interesting parts of women artists is that they couldn't conduct themselves fully in the marketplace. You know, they 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 learned like other artists, but they didn't run their own studios. Their husbands or their brothers, some male figure in their life had to run their studios for them. They were the talent, but in a sense they, they couldn't market themselves uh, because it wasn't allowed for women to transact, to be conducting business transactions. And they also had sort of practical restrictions on what they were able to paint, of course, didn't they? Because, for instance, the, one of the key things is they didn't have access to new models. And so, therefore, certain religious subjects and certainly mythological subjects wouldn't have been available to many of them. Well, this is true. But I always like to point out, but you can look at yourself in the mirror if you're a woman artist, right? So, I mean, I'm not so sure how, how true that is. Uh, there, In fact, we at, in that exhibition, I do recall we had one or two nudes which, uh, again, was not considered necessarily appropriate subject matter except in the context of classical mythology or uh, or uh, biblical painting, of course, uh, you know, stories from the Bible. So there were a couple of nudes, but it wasn't typical. No, of course not. It was a genre, still life, uh, portraiture. Those were the sort of the lower echelon of painting, not history painting, not uh, biblical. But then there were just total exceptions to this. You know, Lavinia Fontana painted very large-scale uh, biblical painting, biblical narrative. And that was uh, unusual, but she uh, was in a, you know, considered a one of the masters and uh, had major church commissions. 
One of the works in that show of yours in 2007, I think, was this extraordinary nude, which is Minerva dressing. Yes. Which is a mythological subject. Of course. And, and a, a female nude painted by a female artist. Yes. Can you tell us more about that work? Well, uh, that, that, you know, we don't know a great deal about that work itself. Uh, but as I said, that's a, a unusual subject for a woman artist at the time. In fact, really not until the 20th century do you have women painting nudes uh, or photographing nudes, for example. So you think about it, she was so, uh, I don't know, prescient or uh, ex- maybe curious. And uh, no doubt there was a, a private owner. I, I don't recall the details on that uh, painting, but no doubt it, it was a private commission, uh, not meant for public consumption necessarily. Um, one thing about Lavinia is uh, I always love to bring up her personal story, which I tended not to do with women artists because I think people became too fixated on the personal. But she, uh, you know, her husband was also a painter, but a lesser painter. So he really. Uh, you know, sort of threw in the towel and became her manager and signed the contracts, et cetera, et cetera. And she had an extraordinary number of children. Eleven, some of, I think. Yeah, some <laughs> of whom lived to, to uh, adulthood. So I always like to think of her on some sort of a scaffold, pregnant, because she was basically eternally pregnant while, while you know, creating these, these, uh, these often very large-scale uh, paintings. And uh, so then I thought maybe she was just a very ambitious person who – who uh, attempted the nude, which was the greatest feat you could do as a painter, was to paint the nude body. She was also a great portraitist, and of course that's where most of her commissions came from. She particularly yes. painted lots of uh, women in, in Bologna. She was almost like the the uh, official painter to, to Bolognese women. Yes, you had to have a Lavinia, you know, exactly, <laughs> paint you, to, 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 which is a lovely idea, you know, that there is this, uh, uh, she had steady patronage, you know, bread and butter kind of thing. Um, let's talk about Sofonispa. She was uh, an intriguing figure because... Uh, she lived to a very great age. And there's this lovely thing that she met Michelangelo and, in fact, may have been instructed in in, in drawing by him. Certainly he apparently made uh, comments on her, on, and in fact, in, in a letter to her father, wrote, wrote very warmly of her. But then at the end of her life, she also met Anthony, a very young Anthony Van Dyke. And so this extraordinary thing is that they, those two ages, the age of Michelangelo and the age of Van Dyke, seem so far apart. And yet this woman artist straddles those, those, those eras, which is extraordinary. Uh, maybe even more extraordinary that they actually recognize her. You know, that is, that's to me the, the more extraordinary part of that story um, because there were so many uh, women artists out there. And I think that was part – that is part of what the ambitions were for this exhibition and others at the National Museum of Women in the Arts to, again, to point out that there are many different strands of uh, – a lot of different stories to be told in art history um, and uh, – of course, today we, we talk about gender fluidity. We talk about, uh, you know, when I started working at the Women's Museum, we were sort of discovering the women. Now it's sort of blown wide open, everything, right? So um, I think the idea that maybe it's not so extraordinary that they recognize these women. I mean, they were in their midst, correct? So, you know, this is to me uh, our blindness that, in fact, somebody like Michelangelo or, uh, you know, Van Dyck or Anybody else would see that there's a woman there. To us, that seems so extraordinary. To them, it's, yes, well, there's this woman artist. You know, Vasari writes a chapter about women artists. And, 
again, when I started in the field, we always go to that saying, well, isn't that amazing that Giorgio Vasari wrote about women artists? And now that I think about it all these years hence, I think, why wouldn't he write about that? Because they were there. And they were extraordinary. And maybe it was, they weren't uh, considered genius at the same magnitude, but they were included. And it's sort of us who has subsequently um, excluded women. Is there a moment when a very male-dominated view of the history of art becomes more prominent? Can you identify a moment in art history where, I mean, is it in the Enlightenment period, for instance? Is, is that when, when genius is defined and encoded in, in, in some way and therefore it becomes associated with ma- maleness in some way? Oh, boy, that's a big question. Um, you know, it's sort of probably wrapped up with the history of the history of art itself, you know, and who dominated that. Uh, again, you know, you have somebody like Lyndon Auckland, who it's not until the early 1970s and says, where are the women artists? How come we uh, we give preference to genius? And if we give preference to genius, how can we talk about women artists? And so she's really the one who sort of puts her finger on that, is that if all we do is talk about genius and Yes, um, most art historians were men, and that's where they focused their attentions on. Uh, then how can we talk about others who are involved in the creation of visual arts? So she kind of moved us off of that idea of genius to talk about other issues in uh, art history. So I'm, I'm being a little elliptical, I know, but the, I think that's that's been part of the issue. And, uh, you know, everybody likes to say, well, in fact, when the Women's Museum was created, the founder said she went to Janssen, H.W. Janssen, and couldn't find anything on women artists. Well, Janssen was the textbook we all used. And uh, Janssen was focused on who are the anchors in art history as we've conceived it. And where did that begin? Uh, it it m- well began in the 19th century. But again, it's so interesting to look back at Vasari and realize he had included these artists. You know, it was later on that they were uh, excluded as as not being, I guess, the anchors, the major, uh, major names of the time. In a way, did Lyndon Nocklin set the kind of philosophical background on which people like yourself and other scholars have then gone on into this program of research into women artists from the past? Oh, absolutely. She and Anne Sutherland Harris, uh, just out by opening up that question, set a new... Uh, paradigm for thinking about histories in general. Uh, who who do we include? How do we, uh, who makes those decisions? And who makes those decisions is, uh, is kind of uh, everybody from, you know, your art history uh, professor to, uh, to yourself. You know, if you decide one day, well, where are the women? And then you set yourself to the task of finding that out, uh, then then you're going to find that you're already changing the, you know, moving the needle, changing that paradigm. And it's changed very, very slowly. That's what I have to say. I mean, it's a, you know, we're here in the 21st century. And I just finished teaching a course on feminist theory. And I thought, sadly, to myself, as I'm looking at these um, uh, students who are all born in the century, (laughs) that um, we're still talking about this. And it doesn't feel like it's changed all that much. Do you think that the, in the Prado having this exhibition in its 200th anniversary year, it might move the needle a little bit further on? Oh, absolutely. It all does. And it's it's lovely. It's just funny when we talk about, you know, if, that this is a feature 
not because of just the artist, who the artist is, but the fact that she's a woman. Uh, it does recall something that just happened, which is the uh, nomination of Kaywin uh, Feldman to the National Gallery of Art in, in Washington, and it's the first woman director. You know, so these things are really important for shattering the glass ceilings that still exist, especially in these uh, these old master. Uh, I'll say they they were thought of as mausolea, and now they are living or living changing organisms like museums. I think should be so. In sense, we're saying, oh, okay, this is great. The Prado's uh, changing its attitude, and certainly the gallery here, you know, uh, has as well as really since the last time I was there, I see a lot of different a lot of different kind of artists being featured. Um, one thing that I hadn't been aware of until I started just looking into this was that uh, one of the biggest problems in terms of um, ensuring that women artists are given greater prominence in terms of old master holdings is that so many works by female old masters are actually uh, attributed to male old masters. And oh, there's yes. this whole process of reattribution going on. Tell me something about that. Oh, uh, that is so interesting. Uh, Judith Leister, for example, uh, was a well-known in her uh, time. And she was part of a guild, which was very unusual for women artists. And uh, she, but her her signature was literally painted over by who dealers? I mean, it's a, a question of the market. As and she was. Uh, promoted as Franz Hals. Her works were promoted as Franz Hals. Uh, this is just purely, um, you know, uh, these sc- scandals that, that dealers were involved in, you know, this kind of s- this idea of reattributing so you could actually uh, ask more money for Franz Hals and you could for Judith Leister. And this kind of thing went on for, uh, well, you know, it, for many, many years. Um, certainly through my era of uh, expertise in late 19th century British painting, uh, dealers were, um, uh, this is what they were involved in, is reattribution to make a, make a, uh, more money. And that, that's what it came down to. So it, it became really incumbent on us as conservatives started to see this very specific, uh, signature from Judith Leister, which had stars. And uh, it was it's a really beautiful signature. And so uncovering that literally uncovered her reputation. There's so little known by these women. And again, there'll be more to be uncovered. tale of two women painters, Sofonispa Anguissola and Lavinia Fontana, is at the Prado in Madrid from the 22nd of October 2019 until the 2nd of February 2020. Now, in June 2019, the artist Helen Kamak came on the podcast to talk about her exhibition Que si può fare, or What Can Be Done, at the Whitechapel Gallery in London. Kamak was the winner of the Max Mara Art Prize for Women, and travelled, like all winners of the prize, to Italy to make a new work. While there, she looked at women composers from the Baroque period who had been largely forgotten and found a way to respond to them through her own work. Here's what she had to say. So tell, tell me about that concept that you had. So you knew before you were, you were going to Italy that you were going to look at particularly at these historical composers. Yeah, I think they were my starting point. Um, I, have, I, I think I'd been to Italy perhaps once in my life um, and so I didn't really know what to expect. Um, and I, what I thought about, I've been interested in thinking about the voice. Um, I'm very interested in music. So music and song comes into performance for me, but also into the films that I make. Um, 
And so I decided to kind of look at Italian culture and, and music and actually got completely pulled in by the Baroque period. So that was my starting point. So um, I think that informed where I went initially on the residency, but it also informed um, me falling back and, and looking back through the way that I'd been working. And something that kept coming up over and over again is lamentation and the idea of lament. Um, so bringing the ideas together, I suppose, of particularly Baroque music, um, composition and the voice um, and lament. So that was that was the gelling moment when when I first heard some Baroque music. And and you focused on two particular composers, two two women composers. Yeah. So uh, um, Barbara Strozzi and Francesca Caccini. Um, and and I have to be completely honest. It was because I was completely transfixed by the music. That was, there's no other starting point for me other than that. It moved me. I, I felt something when I hit, when I heard music by both of those composers. And more importantly, I suppose I am really interested in jazz and I'm interested in the blues and they kind of recur again in performance that I do, but also in the film work that I make. Um, and I could hear, I could hear jazz in Baroque and I could hear blue notes and, and it's to do with the scaling. Um, but it's also to do with the way the music's constructed. And so I just, I got excited. Throughout your work, you've investigated the un- underrepresented in cultures, and that can be in a very broad range of um, uh, locations and uh, social uh, conditions. But uh, are these two composers, in a way, a continuation of that project? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because actually the more research I did, the more I realised how successful both of them were at the time. But what's interesting and what sits really well, I guess, in the in the way that I think of how histories are built is that they disappeared for many years, centuries, in fact. Um, so that's that's the cycle that I'm interested in, is that who is omitted, when they're omitted and why they're omitted. This idea that people are removed from histories. I guess I have this idea of multiple histories. Um, and so it's about building back, interrupting those histories, rewriting them, rethinking them um, and having conversations about what's happened for people to be taken out. So um, this idea that they were always obscure and marginalized is actually not the truth. You know, they were successful. They did have um, they did have a stage and they did have a voice. But somehow over the periods of histories that we've experienced more recently, they disappeared. Can you tell me about how, obviously, you're not making a historical documentary about these composers. So how have you, in a way, brought these figures into the present? Well, I think the biggest challenge for me was I, I perhaps foolishly, uh, gave myself the proposition um, that I would learn. I would have some classical singing lessons. I've never had any singing lessons in my life before. Um, but I do, you know, I use the voice. So I, I do spoken word and song, but I'm not I'm not a singer but I enjoy singing and it becomes part of what I do. Um, so the challenge was to think about how I somehow could allow this music to sit inside me so that as it came from my mouth, um, it was crossing, I suppose, the thing that I'm most interested in is this idea that um, stories and lives can cross time and geographies and there are connections that can be made between people and experiences that don't have to be about an immediate understanding or knowledge or connection so this idea that I would try and sing something so outside of of my own experience and and so you actually had singing lessons and so you'll be doing a performance here at the Whitechapel yeah yes with a with a jazz trumpeter right yes so I think um 
Obviously, I knew that I, I couldn't stand in a room and perform a classical piece of music as a classical singer because that's not who I am. So I'm singing, um, I'm singing Kesu Pofade. I'm singing a pre-opera lament, um, as it's written. So, uh, I, I've learned it and, uh, I've practiced it. Um, and I'm singing it as me. It's my voice. Um, and my voice is vastly improved from having singing lessons, but I'm still not a singer but I'm singing it. And um, one of the things that I was really excited about was the relationship between voices. Um, and the trumpet is something that kind of came up over the research that I've done. So one of the stories that features in the film is um, about uh, a nun who was also a composer. She was called Lucretia Vazana. And she wrote... I think the most incredible music that she, she was part of a, a kind of um, a monastery that was attached. So there was a male section and a female section. Um, and in their monastery, they played and composed music and it, they became famous around the area in Bologna. So crowds would come, not necessarily for, um, for prayer, but to celebrate the music that she, that she composed. And this proved to be such a challenge to the, to the kind of, uh, I suppose not just kind of the papal um, structures in, that, that were in place, but also in terms of in terms of gender, there was a real problem between the male and the female side in, in the in the a monastery. And so there were many many issues that came up. But one of the things was that in the end, the Pope banned them from playing trumpets because it was seen to be unseemly for women to play an instrument that they put into their mouths. Um, so it, it kind of, I mean, the story comes into the, to the film a little bit and also into the book. Um, but basically the nuns refused and carried on playing trumpets and carried on singing. And in the end, they were, um, that the, the papal troops were sent in, um, and they were starved into submission. And Lucretia stopped writing music. She stopped singing. They stopped playing. Um, and the story is that perhaps she kind of lost her mind. So it's a really, it's a sad story, but, um, the trumpet for me then needed to be there. So the, the, yeah, the duet happens and it happens between a classical, classical piece of music, a classical voice, although it's my voice and, and a jazz trumpeter. Helen Camert, Casey Poifare is at the Whitechapel Gallery in London until the 1st of September. The performance she mentioned is repeated on Thursday, the 22nd of August. A version of the exhibition then travels to Collezioni Maramotti, Reggio Emilia, opening on the 13th of October. Kamek is also shortlisted for the Turner Prize this year, and that exhibition opens at the Turner Contemporary Gallery in Margate on the 28th of September. That's all for this episode. Don't forget you can follow all the latest developments in the art world at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can find at the App Store. On the website, you'll find a range of subscriptions, so you can read our content seamlessly across multiple platforms. And you can subscribe for free to our daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Go to theartnewspaper.com and click on the newsletter link at the top right of the page. Do subscribe to this podcast wherever you normally listen to them, and please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook. The Art Newspaper Podcast is produced by Judy Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David is also the editor. We'll be back with another Top of the Pods next week. Until then, goodbye. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.